Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, which puts us almost at the very end of all the scriptures this morning. I'll be picking up in verse 11 and continuing on to the end of the chapter as we are alongside the preacher, the prophet John, as he receives a vision of the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And also another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works as they were recorded in those books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So my friend Buck showed up to the first class of the summer semester. And the professor asked all the students to state their goals for the term. One person in the class wanted to raise their GPA. Another person said their goal was to pass after having failed the same class in the spring. And then the professor turned to the guy who was sitting next to my friend Buck and said, Jeff, what's your goal? Jeff looked a little sheepish as he said, well, I don't know about this class, but basically my goal for life is don't go back to jail. I tell myself that all the time, Jeff, don't you do it. Don't go back to jail. That's a good goal. Such a good goal that most of us have never bothered to write it down or to say it out loud. I've never put that on my daily to-do list. I rarely need to remind myself to avoid jail. I think it's just kind of assumed. And I assume that's why today's image of God is one that most of us would rather avoid as well. There are some images of God that we cling to. When we picture God as father or king, we have in our minds what a good ruler or a parent should be, and we take comfort in imagining God as the best version of those good things. But most of us would rather not stand in front of a judge, even if it's a really good judge. Even if we imagine the very best judge ever, the most fair and wise judge in the whole world, most of us would prefer never to have to stand in front of that judge for any reason. When we make our vision plans and vision boards for the coming year, don't go to jail and don't appear before a judge, occupy roughly the same space. And maybe one of the reasons that some of us avoid the scriptures or the church is that they make judgment feel inescapable. It's right here at the beginning of today's scripture. We see God's throne, the judgment seat descending, and John, the writer, tells us that even the earth and the heavens fled from the presence of God's judgment. But then John says there was no place for earth or heaven to hide. 
The prophet Isaiah described God in roughly the same way when he saw a vision in which God was wearing a cloak that filled every corner of the heavenly courtroom. And Jesus himself put it the same way. He said, light has come into the world and the wicked would not come to the light for fear that they would be exposed. This idea that we find in the scriptures, this sense we have that there is nowhere to flee from the judgment of God It is enough to make you wonder if cell phones are all part of God's plan because there's no escaping them these days and they seem to know everything. Every day gives us some new revelation and all kinds of things that used to hide in shadows are being dragged into the light. And whenever someone's newest failure is brought out into the open, the first response of the offender is to retreat into darkness and to appeal to what we cannot know. I think it's only a matter of time before some celebrity or civil servant issues a press release that says, I regret that I did whatever in front of all those whomever, but I want you to know that those actions and those words do not represent me. When I said whatever, that was not who I am, and that is not my heart. And in my heart, I am not the sort of person who does the sorts of things that I did. We'd like to think that our hearts are the last refuge in the world from judgment. They are the place where judgment cannot reach us. Our hearts are the one place that no cell phone can see. But if you take comfort in a judging God, if we take any comfort rather in a judging God, it's because we tell ourselves that only God can judge our heart and that's what really matters. There's not that much room for that kind of comfort here in the book of Revelation where we see the dead are being raised and John's vision tells us that each person is being judged not simply according to their heart, but they are being judged according to what they have done and left undone, according to the actions recorded in eternal records. Jesus once told a parable that was just like this. He described a day when all humanity will stand before God's throne to be separated like sheep and goats. And God will say to the sheep, for example, you visited me in prison, so now enter into my rest. And then he will say to the goats, you did not visit me, so depart from me now. And I tell you, I wish that the Bible had any examples of someone getting credit for their good intentions. But it's not there. In the Gospels and in Revelation, we are told that we will be judged by what we have done and not done. And when the Bible does mention the judgment of our hearts, it's like an extra judgment, not an escape. It's not an excuse to say an appeal to our heart. Jesus says it's not enough to do the right thing, but we also have to do it for the right reason. Jesus says, do not commit adultery and do not lust in your eye. Jesus says, do not murder and do not call someone a fool in the silence of your heart. Jesus says, it matters what we do and it matters why we do it. And we cannot escape judgment simply by appealing to our heart. A camera phone may not be able to reveal our hearts. But one day God will. In these last two weeks, we've, you know, it's been a tricky task that we've had. 
reconsider, take some of our favorite images of God and think how they might point to something different than what we expected about God. But I think today it's a little harder. Today is a little trickier because today we are looking at an aspect of the divine image that we mostly want to avoid. And today my job is to convince you that judgment is good, actually. This thing that we spend so much time trying to avoid, it's good. And ultimately, I want to convince you that when we talk about God's goodness and God's judgment, we're talking about two different experiences of the exact same thing. Specifically, what we call goodness and what we call judgment are two different ways of describing our encounter with God's glory. The word glory shows up often in the scriptures, so much so that we may be unclear on what it means. Glory is the substance of God. And whenever God's glory, the, the Hebrew word is the kavod, shows up in the Bible, it shows up in the same way. Whenever the Bible is describing God's glory, it says that it shines. When the Bible writers needed an image to describe God's glory, they almost always go to the imagery of light and heat and fire. Sometimes the glory of God, the light of God is so overwhelming that folks fall to the ground in fear. And sometimes the light is a guide that shows the way through dark places. We're told that it was God's glory that led the Israelites in the wilderness as a shining pillar of cloud and day and a burning pillar of fire at night. And it is God's glory that the prophet Malachi had in mind when he gave this prophecy and said, who can endure the day of God's coming? Who can withstand his appearance? He is like the refiner's fire. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. They will belong to the Lord and present a righteous offering. I think it's interesting that both hell and God's glory are consistently described in terms of light and heat. Revelation describes the judgment day in terms of a lake of fire. Malachi says God's glory is like a refiner's fire. The letter of first Peter says that those who trust in God will discover a faith that is more durable than gold, gold that is not destroyed by the refiner's fire. When gold encounters light and heat, its glory increases. It shines even brighter. Maybe that's why John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with fire. And I think it is entirely appropriate to say that when we receive salvation, we are willing to be refined, even now. God's grace is at work preparing us to be who we are going to be in heaven and in the new creation. When God's glory comes full of light and heat, we will endure if we have been refined before then. Jude chapter one, verse 24 says that God is making us strong enough to stand in God's presence on the day that he comes. Salvation is about God making us strong enough to take the heat and to shine. And the glory of God shines a light onto everything. And judgment is what happens when that light and that heat burn away all the things that cannot stand 
It's what happens when God purifies what will endure. Judgment is what happens when we see, finally, how very good God is. And judgment is what happens when we see how truly good God's desire is. And judgment is when we see how our own all-too-small desires compared to the glory of God. We finally say, you know what? I was made for something better. In the simplest terms, judgment is when we see clearly how much we are loved. That may sound strange to you, but I think it can become obvious to us today that judgment is the discovery of how much you are loved. And I think we can come today to see that as clearly as the marvelous songwriter Andrew Peterson, who discovered this month that he could not find any hope in the deaths of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd unless he appealed to the judgment of God. I've been a fan of Peterson's for a very long time, and as he sat down this month to write about those killings, Andrew Peterson began to imagine the judgment day and not what it would be like for those who had died, but what it'll be like for their killers. And he wrote these words. He wrote, those names are gonna haunt you till you lie down in the grave and say goodbye. And on the resurrection morn, you'll see the form of Jesus blazing in the sky. And then you'll know how much he loved the ones who suffered whose blood was crying from the ground. And you'll reckon with the truth that even they and even you were so much dearer than you knew. That's almost too much to bear, isn't it? Maybe the greatest reason we don't know how much we are loved is that we are afraid to discover how much God loves our neighbor. And in the moment that we discover how much God loves us, we will understand how much God also loves the ones that we have injured and hated and neglected in our own lives. When we understand how much God loves us, we will understand how God ached and every time that we dismissed his beloved ones, we just wanted to stay out of jail that God made us for something so much more wonderful. It's too much. I wonder, have you ever known someone who seemed so effortlessly good and pure that it made you feel bad in comparison? Is it any wonder that the, we might then experience the glory of God as judgment? We might see how good God is and then have to look at our lives in a different way. Is it any wonder the prophets in the Bible were always afraid to see the face of God? I'm I'm afraid I might have done too good a job connecting God's goodness and God's judgment together. 
I'm afraid that the end result of this might be that I make you afraid of God's goodness as much as God's judgment. And maybe I've seen made God's goodness and love seem less like good news to you and more like something you need to flee. Maybe it feels like you just can't win. If even knowing God's love would make you see your neighbor differently and feel judged. Maybe it feels like you just can't win. Of course you can't. I can't. None of us wins in our own power. There's never been any chance that any one of us would be good enough to make it through this life without breaking something beyond repair. We aren't going to make our own way to God. And that, of course, is why the good news is that God made a way to us. And in Christ Jesus, God offered to walk with us through the refining fire. In the resurrection, Jesus made a promise that the fire will not have the last word over us. And becoming a Christian is the process of learning not to be afraid of admitting the truth. Becoming a Christian is about learning to confess our sins honestly and without evading, without evasion, without trying to hide them in some shadow. We can be honest because we have learned that none of our sins, as terrible as they may be, can separate us from God. The only thing that can separate us from God is our own fear of being known, our fear of stepping into the light. And we can even learn to let our own light shine. We can turn our fear of God's glory into something that makes Satan run away scared. I want you to hear this word of judgment from Romans chapter 12. The preacher in that letter wrote to us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And then Paul goes on to say, No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Isn't that something? Every so often, somebody tells me that I need to preach a little more fire and brimstone. You want to bring fire and brimstone into the world? You want to heap burning coals on the heads of the enemies of God? Go and feed them. You want to show the world the awesome and terrible glory of God. Take a cup of water to the one who hates you. Paul goes on from there. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Bless the people who harass you. Bless and do not curse them because it is possible, even normal for the world to treat the goodness of God as if it is a threat. If we were the smallest picture of the goodness of God, we would be a threat to the world. Because the light of God threatens all our idols and all our secrets and all the things that we would choose to keep to ourselves. It is possible and even normal 
to think that we would be safer if we just stayed in the dark. But Satan's greatest fear is that we will start walking in the light today instead of waiting for one day. The devil fears a church that lets Christ judge us now before he judges the world. The devil fears a Christian who confesses their sin, who takes up a cross and walks through the refining fire daily. Satan is afraid of the person who won't be afraid of the light when Christ comes in glory. Satan is afraid that we might leave the shadows. And he's afraid that we might give someone else the courage to walk in the light too. So let us welcome the goodness of God and not be afraid of its judgment. Let us remember and walk unafraid, believing that God made us for something better. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, let us learn never to fear your presence, even if it would turn our lives upside down, even if it would strip away from us all that has kept us from you. Let us not fear to walk in the light, to have our own hearts exposed. Because we know the only thing that can separate us from you are the things we choose to hold on to and hide. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.